I invite you to turn your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Kings chapter 6 as we continue our study of this portion of God's Word, and we will be this evening in chapter 6, uh, beginning in verse 24. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 24, and we'll be examining this entire episode, which is recorded through chapter 7, verse 20. I'll be reading from the Legacy Standard Version, beginning in chapter 6, verse 24. Now it happened afterwards that Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, gathered all his military camp and went up and besieged Samaria. Now there was a great famine in Samaria, and behold, they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and a fourth of a cob of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. As the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Save my lord, O king. He said, If Yahweh does not save you, from where shall I save you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? And the king said to her, What is the matter with you? And she said, This woman said to me, Give your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him, and I said to her on the next day, Give your son that we may eat him, but she has hidden her son. Now it happened that when the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath his body. Then he said, May God do to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. Now Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him, and the king sent a man from his presence. But before the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, Do you see how this son of a murderer has sent to take away my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door shut against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? While he was still speaking with them, behold, the messenger came down to him and he said, Behold, this evil is from Yahweh. Why should I wait for Yahweh any longer? Then Elisha said, Listen to the word of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh, About this time tomorrow a seah of fine flour will be sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. And the royal officer on whose hand the king was leaning answered the man of God and said, Behold, if Yahweh should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? Then he said, Behold, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat of it. Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, Why do we sit here until we die? If we say, we will enter the city, then the famine is in the city, and we will die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now come, and let us go over to the camp of the Arameans. 
If they spare us, we will live, and if they put us to death, we will die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Arameans. Then they came to the outskirts of the camp of the Arameans, but behold, there was no one there. Now the Lord had caused the camp of the Arameans to hear a sound of chariots and a sound of horses, even the sound of a great military force. So that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Therefore they arose and fled in the twilight and forsook their tents and their horses and their donkeys, even the camp just as it was, and fled for their life. So these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp and entered one tent and ate and drank. Then they carried from there silver and gold and clothes, and they went and hid them. And they returned and entered another tent and carried from there also and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news, but we are keeping silent. If we wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. So now come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city, and they told them, saying, We came to the camp of the Arameans, and behold, there was no one there, nor the voice of a man, only the horses tied and the donkeys tied, and the tents just as they were. And the gatekeepers called and told it within the king's household. Then the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I will now tell you what the Arameans have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone from the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, When they come out of the city, we will capture them alive and get into the city. And one of his servants answered and said, Please, Let some men take five of the remaining horses which remain in the city. Behold, they will be in any case like all the multitude of Israel who remain in it. Behold, they will be in any case like all the multitude of Israel who have already come to an end. So let us send and see. They took therefore two chariots with horses, and the king sent after the camp of the Arameans, saying, Go and see." Then they went after them to the Jordan, and behold, all the way was full of clothes and equipment which the Arameans had thrown away in their haste. Then the messengers returned and told the king. So the people went out and plundered the camp of the Arameans. Then a sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of Yahweh. Now the king appointed the royal officer on whose Hand he leaned to have charge of the gate, but the people trampled on him at the gate, and he died, just as the man of God had spoken, who spoke when the king came down to him. So it happened, just as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, Two seahs of barley for a shekel and a sea of fine flour for a shekel will be sold tomorrow about this time at the gate of Samaria." And the royal officer had answered the man of God and said, Now behold, if Yahweh should make windows in heaven, how could such a thing be? And he had said, Behold, you will see it with your own eyes, 
but you will not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled on him at the gate, and he died. Amen. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Oh God, even without a preaching of this portion of your word, our our attention is gripped by this account. We pray now as we come to it that your Holy Spirit would grant us understanding and that we would again be shaped and fashioned little by little by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, they were desperate times in Israel. Very, very desperate. Uh, We know that they had been in a state of spiritual apostasy for some time now, particularly under the influence of Ahab and Jezebel. We're now in the reign of one of Ahab's sons. We're not even told his name. It's interesting that his name is even blotted out, as it were. This is a time we don't know exactly. Um, It seems at a different time than the previous passage because verse 23 told us that the Arameans did not come into the land of Israel again. And then the very next verse, we're in this episode where they're in the land of Israel again. So it may be that that this is just um, a record of various accounts of God's ministry through Elisha and the fulfillment of his word. And... um, We'll leave it at that. We trust that uh, the Holy Spirit had wisdom in ordering the account in this manner. Now, uh, it happened that Ben-Hadad, verse 24, of Aram, gathered all his military, went up and besieged Samaria. Ancient uh, besieging of a city was a common military tactic, and it was absolutely brutal. Um, We see the massive walls from archaeological digs throughout um, this period of history and that part of the world especially. It was a way where if the enemy was coming, you could pull in your people and your defenses and and it would be very difficult without modern firepower for an opposing enemy to come within the city gates. But the difficulty was it was really a gamble in a way because you were taking a risk, you were basically saying that you planned on having enough water and enough food to outlast your enemy who is sitting outside the gates. And we know in biblical history that these typically weren't short times of a, of a siege, uh, weeks, months, years. In this case, this this siege was severe. They were desperate times. They were desperate times. Desperate times in Israel. And in verses 24 through 31, we learn of these desperate times. It was, verse 25, a great famine. And we're given some of the details to underscore just how bad it was. Um, I, I have never heard of anyone eating a donkey's head except uh, in scripture. Um, These are 
these are Jews. A donkey's head certainly isn't kosher. Um, the horses, they're eating the horses, they're eating the donkeys. They're eating anything they can that has some calories in it. This is where they're at. And if you want a donkey's head or a little plop of dove dung, you better be prepared to shell out an absolute fortune. This is, these are vast amounts of money for a donkey's head and for a little portion of dove dung. People desperate to get calories any way they can. Starvation's a terrible thing. I'm sure some of you have read historical accounts and war or those who have been at sea, you know, marooned. It's a tremendous trial. The body goes through horrible suffering and becomes uh, a testing of, I, I really can't imagine what it's like to go day after day, week after week, month after month, with little or no food. They're starving. And people are absolutely desperate. And those with vast sums of money are going to whatever's left of a so-called market, and they are hauling out their vast wealth and they're paying up for a donkey's head or a little cob of dove dung. That means that the poor who didn't have those large sums of money weren't getting anything. And we know from history that when that happens, tragically, people desperate, selfishly, sometimes out of their minds, start to look around at each other. And in this case, these vulnerable children were subject to unspeakable treatment where two women of Israel, so hungry in their sinfulness, and market, it is sin, they make a, strike a bargain that it's, it's hard to even think about but it's recorded in Holy Scripture. They made a deal that one day they would eat one woman's boy and next day they would, or a few days later, eat the other woman's boy. This is horrible, but it is not merely just a detail that's recorded in Holy Scripture because it grabs our attention. It is, in fact, a fulfillment of God's warnings. God had warned in Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 28 that if Israel ever departed from his law, from the covenant that he entered into with them, if they left God and worshipped other gods, so-called, that eventually judgment would come and part of the severe judgment would be that they would be under siege from foreign enemies and they would even be brought so low as in their wickedness and in their desperation that they would eat 
some of their own offspring. And there's children here tonight, and it's, it's hard for us to think this. I'm sure, parents, you can help your kids process this. Um, <laughs> we need to remember that when we give our kids a children's Bible, that their children's Bible has things like this in it. So my tactic is might as well talk about it in public rather than just leave them with their Bible in their room. It's there, and we need to help them understand this. It's horrible. It's terrible. It's a frightful scene. They were so desperate that the most vulnerable were murdered and used. And uh, it is a scene of depravity of the worst kind. The king at this point is going by and this woman calls out to him and we've learned of the desperate times. We now learn through the king that not only are these desperate times, but they're times of deal-making religion. Deal-making religion. The woman calls to the king and uh, he's maybe trying to go around assessing the situation and trying to think of something that he can do. Maybe he's trying to be a good king and to somehow keep up the morale of the people. But this is too much. The woman calls out to him, tells him the situation, and he hears these words, verse 30, and tears his clothes, which would be a sign of, of grief, of anger, of astonishment, and then he says in verse 31, May God do to me and more so if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. Well, what did Elisha do? That kind of seems to us a little bit out of nowhere. Why does he have a problem with Elisha in this instance? Well, there's a little hint maybe up in verse 30, the end of verse 30. As he was passing by on the wall, the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. Oh. And we know from biblical text that sackcloth was, for those who were rulers and kings, uh, was an open, visible sign of remorse and of repentance. But what's interesting is the king has sackcloth on, and uh, the people noticed that. Um, I, I've never worn a skirt or a kilt, <laughs> but if you're walking around, uh, I, I suppose if, if uh, our sisters know that if you have a dress or a skirt on, you, you do have to be a little careful of where you're walking because, you know, slip might show and, you know, who knows? And you got to think of these things. Well, the king has robes on and under his robes, is sackcloth and and the people notice it you see and can't be hidden and the sackcloth is is striking because huh the king must be mourning he has sackcloth on but it's underneath his robes what's going on well the best that we can surmise and it doesn't take a lot to figure this out is that he understood from God's word and probably from Elisha the prophet that from God's law, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, this is what God had prophesied would happen when his people Israel departed from his law and went after other gods. This is what happens. And so your only chance 
is if you repent, humble yourself, and cry out to God to save you from this situation. Well, it seems that Elisha or one of Elisha's men had delivered this message to the king. I know we're not told that exactly, but whether from Elisha's previous ministry or from a current ministry, a word, the king knows enough that if this judgment is from Yahweh, that God's, Yahweh's way of changing things is if his people humble themselves, seek his face, confess their sins. And so he puts on sackcloth. But it's apparent he's not really repentant. So what's he doing? He's doing what so many people try to do, make deals with God. Uh, this, this is very random. I, I'm, I'm embarrassed I even remember this, but there's a, uh, uh, one of those uh, songs, rock songs in the 80s, and uh, I don't even know who the band is or who sang it and that's probably a good thing but one of the lines is if I only could make a deal with God if I only could make a deal with God well the problem is God doesn't make deals he doesn't make deals with mankind he is God he commands and man is to repent and obey But God doesn't do bargains. We've learned this already. But the king of Israel, perhaps Jehoram at this point, thinks that Yahweh is just like the other gods or just like us. And that a bargain can be struck with him. Kind of a halfway covenant. In other words, okay, I know this is what you want, God, so technically I'll... I'll put on sackcloth. It's not public remorse. It's not public confession of sins, but I have sackcloth on. And if I have sackcloth on, then maybe that'll change Yahweh's mind. And he'll, if I, if I step up and, and show a little bit of acknowledgement of him, maybe he'll show a little bit of acknowledgement of me and my people and ease our suffering. He's trying to strike a bargain with God, make a deal with God. Doesn't work, never does. And it's uh, actually a, a display of gross disrespect. This is evident today and those in all kinds of religions who think that just by going to a church service that somehow they're in with God, who think by at least going to Easter and Christmas they're okay, Um, who maybe think if they, I don't know, adjust their language a little bit or listen to Christian music once in a while or at least go to church time to time, that God is somehow bound to bless them it's kind of you call it rabbit foot religion too if you wanted treating God like he's some kind of lucky charm it is demeaning it is unbecoming and it is below the dignity of God and God is not fooled what do the scriptures say do not be deceived 
God is no fool. He knows the heart. He knows true contrition, true remorse, true repentance when he sees it. He knows. Even in the heart of the most evil, corrupt man, God can see whether it's true or not. And there are instances of truly wicked men repenting. Later on in Israel's history, one of the most striking examples will be Manasseh in exile repents. And, and apparently it's sincere. It's, it's remarkable. But in this case, this is no sincere repentance. This is the profession of faith, but the absence of fruit. This is just overt bargain religion. So the king, that's why his anger just lashes out. He has gone along so far. He, he thought, if this is from Yahweh, if this is judgment upon my people, okay, I get it, then I'll do what he wants. I'll put on a little bit of sackcloth. But here he is, and the sackcloth isn't working. Going to church isn't working. Saying a prayer once in a while isn't working. Reading his Bible isn't working. Swearing a little less isn't working. God, in his mind, isn't living up to his end of the bargain. And so he's enraged. And he's enraged since he can't see God, since he can't get at God. He's enraged at Yahweh, God's servant, Elisha. And that's why he says in verse 31, May God do to me more and more so to me and all more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. He may not be able to take off God's head, but he can take off the head of God's man. And that's been the case throughout history. When evil men can't get at God, they'll get to the men of God. So he's after him. He's, he's enraged. He's done with this bargain with God. I'm sure, I'm sure you've experienced this. If you haven't, you'll witness it at some point. You begin to see people who, who hear of the hope that's in Jesus Christ, who hear of the hope of the scriptures, their life is full of misery and, and the consequences of sin and ungodliness. And, and maybe you're able to counsel them or to point them to the hope that's in the grace of the gospel and in God's way. And, but they hear that as a bargain. And there's no true repentance there. There's no true contrition. It's, it's false. It's, it's worldly sorrow. It's not godly sorrow. It's, it's the worldly sorrow that produces regret but it's not the godly sorrow that produces repentance without regret. So he's a sham. He's a fake. He's a farce in his religion. And those who are hypocrites are liable to be angry when God doesn't submit to their will. So he sends a messenger, verse 32. Elisha's sitting in his house elders were sitting with him. That's interesting. Uh, that's interesting that the elders were sitting with him. I don't know exactly who these elders are. They may be some leaders of Israel. It, it may be that the king was stubbornly unrepentant. It may be that some of the severe conditions brought some of the leaders, the elders of Israel, to repentance, and, and they get it, and they're with Elisha. It may be partly why God, in his mercy and grace, saves them from the siege. 
But the elders are there sitting with Elisha in his house. Remember Elisha's name, El, God, Shah, salvation. God is salvation or God is my salvation. God is salvation. Interesting in the context of this story. So they're there and the king sent a man from his presence But before the messenger even came to Elisha, he said, he was revealed to him by God, do you see how this son of a murderer has sent away to take my head? So again, we've already learned that God has been pleased to reveal to Elisha whatever was said by the Aramean kings, and now he knows what the king of Israel has said. And notice what he calls him, son of a murderer, son of a murderer. Now, this is a little bit of an aside, but I find that New Covenant Christians have difficulty with this kind of language because Jesus said, love your neighbor. Now, we are to love our neighbor. We are, absolutely. (laughs) That is very clear in the New Testament. It's actually very clear in the Old Testament. You shall love your God and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know, these are the two commandments and Jesus was referring to the Old Testament. So, so, What do you do with this son of a murderer? Should someone take Elisha aside and say, now, Elisha, now, that's that's not very loving and kind. Do you think Jesus would have us speak that way about this man? (laughs) Well, um, based on the sheep and the goats and the Olivet Discourse, yes, I think Jesus would have Elisha speak of this wretched, evil man in these terms. He's a son of a murderer, Ahab. And he's acting just like his father. So just as a little aside bonus tonight, we all need to work on our understanding of the New Testament. We are to love our neighbor, but we carry out the commands of God in the light of reality and truth and the whole counsel of his word. And the fact is there are still wretches and worthless men and women in this world that as people of truth... We tell it like it is. This man is a son of a murderer. And uh, Elisha says so. So we shouldn't be afraid of speaking the truth when things are that apparent and that obvious. He says to the other men, shut the door when the messenger comes because the king is so enraged, he's following his messenger. (laughs) He sent the messenger, but... But he just wants to see this done. He wants to be there when Elisha's head is taken off. And while he was still speaking with them, behold, verse 33, the messenger came. And here's the message. Behold, this evil is from Yahweh. That's true. It's true. Uh, Again, uh, that's exactly what God said would happen. Is if they turn from him that he would give them into the hands of their enemies and they would be brought to the place where there would even be cannibalism among them. They would be so desperate. But why should I wait for Yahweh any longer? Oh, now that's going too far. That's impugning the character of God. That That is shifting the blame. That is saying that the reason for our predicament is because of Yahweh's character not because of ours. 
And that is always the sinner's anger against God. The situation in my life, the circumstances I don't like, the consequences for my sin. Anger with God. Attempt to shift the blame. Why should I wait for Yahweh any longer? Well, it's apparent that he wasn't even waiting for Yahweh sincerely in the first place. Sackcloth under his robes. An insincere repentance. He was never waiting in the first place. So, Elisha said, listen to the word of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh, about this time tomorrow, a sea of fine flour will be sold for a shekel. I mean, I, don't, I can't remember some of the exact estimates in modern day terms, but this is like um, flour the previous day. I mean, we think basic commodities are expensive these days. We're paying what? Five dollars for a dozen eggs? I don't know. It's ridiculous, right? Some of the things that have been going on. But we're talking here like $100,000 for a dozen eggs. And it's like saying $100,000 for this flour today, tomorrow will be a dollar. It's kind of the, the terms of drastic change In other words, the price of flour is going to go from something that almost the extremely, only the most extremely wealthy can afford to something that your average person can actually think about buying. It'll be sold for a shekel, two seas of barley for a shekel, and notice there's no reference of a donkey's head because there won't be any need to eat donkey's heads anymore. There'll be food. In other words, tomorrow... There's going to be so much food available that some semblance of normalcy is going to be returned. The royal officer, the assistant of the king, and who was sent, uh, who came with the king, and he blurted out, Behold, if Yahweh should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? Now, this is not the kind of believing awe that Mary had when the angel announced to her that she would conceive in her womb. That, that was a response of faith. She was just in awe, amazed, but amazed in faith. This man was amazed with un, in unbelief. This is a question of derision. He, he's publicly mocking the ability of God to fulfill his word through his servant. I mean, could this thing possibly be? Solemnly, frighteningly, Elisha says, Behold, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat of it. We've seen desperate times. We've seen deal-making religion. And now we are witnessing flat unbelief. Flat unbelief. And you can think on that at the end of the story. Um, maybe um, he's going to be flat. You getting it? Oh, okay. All right, just checking. I, try, I worked hard on that one. Uh, he, with his unbelief, is going to be flat. Flattened in the end. Run straight over. But that's what it is. It's just bold, plain, flat unbelief. This man does not believe that Yahweh is capable of doing what he has said he will do through his servant. He is mocking 
the word of God and he is doubting publicly the power of God. Well, lastly, we learn that God has the last word, as he always does. God is the God of the last word. The scene changes to four leprous men. If the famine was bad inside the city, um, how bad would it have been just outside the entrance to the gate? At a time when people are so consumed with their own hunger that they're thinking of eating one another, who is in mercy sharing any food with four lepers, particularly in Israel in the north, which is apart from God's law, and God's law had mandated that they were to care for the poor among them. Well, at this time, they are so far from the law of God that doubtless these men didn't receive any mercy, any kindness whatsoever. These are men who are in severe straits. And they reason together, why sit here until we die? Their reasoning is very logical. It makes perfect sense. They just work it through. Um, If we sit here, we're going to die. If we go in the city, there's no food. And I don't know, they might even start looking at four leprous men and thinking, what can we do with them? They're going to die. And so the third option is the Arameans have food. They might kill us, but they might not. So let's go. It's the only possible way of survival. So they arise at twilight. This is in the dark, in the evening. They go there, and, and I don't need to recount the story. You get it. It must have been amazing. They, they go they, they go with resolve. They go as men who think, I don't know, this could be our last walk. Um, But to their shock, they arrive, and there's no one there. And perhaps at first, like desperate men in in their giddiness, but they are thirsty, they are hungry, and they see that no one's there, and so they just dive into one of the tents, and there is a food that's spread out, and, and maybe it's still on the table because these Arameans had run and just left everything as it was. And, and so they just begin eating and drinking, verse 8. And in the meantime, like many might do, they see all the riches around, the silver and the gold, and they figure, well, you know, this would be helpful for retirement. Um, and so they, they take that and hide it. But these leprous men eventually, you know, in their, in their amazement, And after they, for a while, have been enjoying the food, they have enough conscience to say, verse 9, we are not doing right. And they recognize that uh, if they don't tell somebody quickly, uh, they could actually be punished. So they go and they tell, and you know the rest of that account. The king, however, is still in unbelief. Elisha, remember, had spoken to the king that the next day that God would provide food such that flour, for example, would be sold for a mere shekel. This was the word of the Lord through a servant of the Lord who had spoken the word of the Lord on previous occasions and on every previous occasion what he had spoken had come to pass. And yet this king, just like his father, was a man of unbelief. And so he knew best. 
It couldn't possibly be, it couldn't possibly be that God's word actually was true. It couldn't possibly be that God's word might have something to say about the situation. It couldn't possibly be that God's word was his salvation. But his servants, uh, they see the hardened heart of the king and they reason together, well, it can't hurt at least to go see if it's true. And again, we're told of how desperate the situation is. All the horses have been eaten. Um, I've heard that horse meat isn't terribly uh, delicious, though they eat it in some parts of the world. Uh, Well, in Israel in those days, it was on the menu. And because of that, there weren't many horses left. And in eating their horses, they were basically eating the most powerful instruments of their military. So they take what they can. They try to put an assembl- together a semblance of a military impression. And they send two chariots with horses. The horses are probably skinny and struggle to pull even the chariots. And they go and see. And, and they begin to see along the way clothes and equipment that was just thrown away. Because God had in the night made the Arameans hear the sound of a mighty, awesome army. And it's just interesting to consider that in the previous chapter, chapter 6, remember Elisha, the servant of Elisha, the young man, his eyes were open and he saw chariots and horses of fire. Well, in this case, the Arameans apparently don't see the fiery chariots, but they hear them. They hear the horses neighing. They hear the implements and the the weapons of war of a mighty army. And what they think is that the king of Israel somehow has managed to send word and Egypt has come up from the south and the Hittites from the north. They're coming down and they're, they're going to pinch the Arameans and they're done. And so they, they're done. So they just, they flee. That's the only thing they can do. They leave everything to leave as quickly as they possibly can. So it happened, verse 18, just as the man of God had spoken. It's just, you see the emphasis on that in verses 17 and following? Just as the man of God had spoken. So verse 16, back up, I'm sorry. The people went out when they heard the message. They went out and plundered the camp of the Arameans. Then a seah of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel according to the word of Yahweh. Yahweh has the last word. Yahweh has the last word. And and this is emphasized, and I want you to notice that the Holy Spirit underscores this. This man, this assistant to the king, who mocked the word of Yahweh given by Elisha, the man who said, should Yahweh make windows in heaven, could this thing be? In Holy Scripture, not only is the actual occasion referenced, but just in case we miss the point, the Holy Spirit in verses 18 through 20 underscores that what God said would come upon him for judgment happened. Do you see that? So we're told what happened. He's flattened by the crowd because he denied the word of the Lord. And then we're told, so it happened just as the man of God. In other words, it's, it's emphasized. It's emphasized. 
flat unbelief will not fare well in the judgment to come. God will have the last word because his word is true, his word is faithful. What a gracious God. So may God grant that we look to him. May God grant that we are faithful to him. May God grant that when we are in times of difficulty and perhaps we even feel that we're under the discipline of the Lord, may we turn to him and trust him in whatever our circumstances are. After all, we read tonight together in the hymnal from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, that our God, who is the same God we've heard of tonight in the scriptures, is the God who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or understanding or understand according to the power that works within us. He can do tomorrow what in the eyes of minds of men is the unthinkable. And we dare not forget it and we dare not doubt it. We don't want flat unbelief. We want humble faith. And may God grant that to us. Let's pray. God, help us to remember that you can do exceedingly beyond what we can think or even imagine. Help us to be found among those who do not live in persistent, stubborn unbelief. Help us to be those who tremble at your word with childlike faith. We praise you that you are able to do whatever you say you will do. And we are so happy tonight because you have spoken wonderful things in your word about what you will do for your people. So help us in anticipation to rejoice with trembling in Jesus' name. Amen.